Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Hello to you. I'm Jay Hall, and welcome to another edition of History of Being Black. I am here with a distinguished professor of American Ethnic Studies and Sociology, an author of over 12 books, Dr. Earl Smith. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good, good. Are you adjusting to the time zone that they should get rid of, but they're still here? (laughs) (laughs) I don't put much investment in that one because it's not something I can control. I'm with you on that. It's a... it's, it, it annoys me slight, like less every year because it's like, what's the point? We, we keep talking about it. It's not, it's not about to happen no time soon. So it was just, <laughs> I just enjoy this. But that's, that's good. That's good. Um, I mentioned that you've written over you know, 12 books, but I, I want to get into your background a little bit because the books that you have, first of all, I just want to say the one book, the title that stands out to me, way down in the hole that got my attention just because the wire is the greatest show ever to me you know argue with your mama that's just how i feel in life so you had my attention from the start but let's 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 get into your background just a tad bit where are you from originally i grew up in long island oh okay the the six boroughs they uh, like to say uh actually <laughs> so. nah no long island <laughs> separate from those boroughs Right, the unofficial, but I've heard that. Right, okay. And what was that like coming up in Long Island? Uh, I guess you know I would uh, characterize it as you know you grow up, you, you you're a kid, you move into adolescence, and you do all the things your parents want you to to do. You go to school, you try to stay out of trouble, and then for my era, you go in the military. Do you recall the first time you seen something that kind of woke up your consciousness where you asked why? Yes. And I, I like to tell that story because it it's a part of what, what we would call now African-American history. Uh, Woolworths, the five and dime store, uh, plays a prominent role in African-American history and so happened that in the town where I grew up, there was Woolworths, and it also had a counter. Uh, I can't recall whether there were sit-ins at that counter, but I knew that we, as young black boys and girls, uh, didn't go to that counter. I guess it was understood. But to get to the junior high school, you could come through the front doors, and then you could exit at the back of the store and immediately across the street was the junior high school. And as you can imagine, this, those type of stores back then, they had, you know, men's clothes, shoes, women's clothes, shoes. They also had candy counters, uh, huge candy counters. And um, I'm sure I, I, I would say I didn't partake, but coming out of the back door one day, uh, the police showed up, you know, 
group of us who went to school every day came out the back door and the police said, stop. And I'll tell you, uh, I don't know what they had in those days, but it was probably a 38 uh, snub nose. And he put it right there and said, you ends need to stop stealing candy in this store. That was a long time ago. And I can tell you, my telling this to you feels like it was yesterday. Yep. So when you say, you know, is there an incident that you stop and say, whoa, that to me, that's it. How how was it explained to you what happened? It wasn't. Mm. What we were told was stop stealing the candy. Um, and if anybody in my little you know, group was doing it, I would assume they stopped because they could see what was happening. Um, so the store managers or whoever must have said, well, these kids come through here at this particular time every day and, and call the police. Um, I never saw it again. I'm not sure if I told my parents about it. I can't remember if it was a conversation but I flat out remember that it happened. And so you, you experienced that, but you also mentioned earlier about going into the military. So what branch of the military did you go into? I was in the army. I just read a story this afternoon about Buffalo soldiers that, I mean, I knew about, but I didn't know all the particulars, but I read it carefully because, um, Military Day was just celebrated the other day. And, you know, people throw out that thank you for your service stuff. And these soldiers were hung, even though they requested to be shot. They were hung. I don't know, 15 or 20 of them. Uh, and the story, the reason it's up today is that they've been exonerated because they didn't do what they were hung for. Uh, which resonates big time with me because some of the work we do and have done and written about is these exonerations. Um, and, you know, people come out of the courthouse uh, and they have lawyers surrounding them. They have lots of microphones like yours that you have there and everybody's clapping and they're happy, but they shouldn't be. Because the nonsense starts on the front end with a cop uh, who stops you for something or knocks on your door for something. And the next thing you know, you're pulled into the system, you're, you're arrested, you're convicted, you're incarcerated, and it takes 30 years for them to say you didn't do it. And, and, and the majority of those people who we see going through that process are black men. Uh, disproportionately black men. Um, and it's horrible. Uh, even though we celebrate the fact that it happens. And sometimes they may get some money. More often than not, they don't because these states have figured out through their um, right-wing legislatures how to say they don't have the money for the compensation. And so a lot of these men and women, but a lot of these men, they don't get a dime. And as far as anybody knows, 
they're you know they're they're felons. They they've they've been to jail, and to get that record expunged is another legal process. Just doesn't happen automatically. Um, we looked the other day for a gentleman who was exonerated in the South, and uh, his name is still on the um, state DLC. You know, you can look inmate. Uh, what do you call it? The inmate register. If you want to see if somebody's in 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 jail or prison, yeah. and his name is still there. So it's a it's a brutal system, and it starts with that one cop arresting you for something you didn't do and now you got to fight this big 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 burly system um and nobody cares while those 15 or 20 or 30 years that you're in prison that you didn't do it because hey everybody says who are in here says they didn't do it so you're just another person saying i didn't do it um and uh this exoneree that we write about and got to know very well and did work with, uh, he was convicted of rape and murder of a white woman in the South. And you have to know in, in, in some of those prisons in, 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 in the backwaters, as he told us, his life was in jeopardy every day, uh, not only from the other prisoners, but from the correctional officers. Uh, he's carrying around that crime. Oh, that's that guy that raped and killed that white girl. And it took 20 years to say, oh, my gosh, we got it wrong. He didn't do it. Dr. Smith, when you explain the way you explain it, that's part of the reason, me personally, why I kind of struggle when I hear the news. Oh, this person's been exonerated. And what is it about the pushback of that if you're the one who's like, yeah, but we sh- it shouldn't have been like that in the first place? But there seems to always be like some sort of pushback, even from our own people of, no, we should be happy. And there's always this dance that seems to exist within us of we should be happy, but I'm like, but it shouldn't have happened. What is that from your work that you see? Well, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Uh, the fact that the person was exonerated, there is some room to be happy about that, that they've quote, finally got it right. But it took 15, 20, 30. I saw cases the other day, 44 years. And a lot of it has to do with, well, it, you know, it took a little bit of time to get the DNA evidence because most of these are cases that have DNA uh, evidence involved. When in fact, you can get DNA evidence inside of a day. I mean, you can run the tests and you can get it back in a day. Uh, in fact, some of these police forces are now carrying around little kits um, where they can run DNA um, and so you have people saying, I've been waiting 10 years to get, you know, the DNA uh, results. So when we say that the system turns slowly, it does. But I'm sure every mother, every spouse, every, you know, cousin and family member, they're, they're happy that that day did come, did finally come. So I can understand that, believe me. But when we're trying to do the research on it, we're saying this starts on the front end with this rotten cop or detective. And uh, they know darn well because half the cases, when you when you look at the record, are from uh, prosecutorial misconduct, uh, terrible eyewitness testimony. 
And you got people saying, well, the cops told me if I would name him, then I would be able to go home or do whatever I'm doing. And and then again, the 20 years, 30 years later, the person is saying, well, I told him that I lied and uh, no judge would pick that up. So that sort of coming to Jesus moment for whoever lied, that's still thrown away. So you say, well, if you said they did it on this date, and now you're coming back and saying they didn't do it, why did you say that? And they say, well, the cops said if I didn't, they were going to take my son or they were going to you know, take my daughter. So you got all this stuff going on in the criminal legal system that's supposed to be a system that keeps us safe. And for black people, for sure, it doesn't keep you safe. It's a terrible system. And, you know, we've been doing research in and around this system. And up until this summer when we did some work, uh, it's just the same old rotten system. And everybody's going to transform it from President Biden, who told us that if he came to office, at least in the federal side, where he has some say, he was going to reduce the numbers. And you take a look at the numbers. If they've done anything, they've gone up. Uh, you know, the number of people incarcerated in federal prisons have gone up since the day he stepped in office. And you say, well, it's not really difficult, President Biden. You just take all those people who've been locked up for possession of marijuana. Let them go. Because guess what? We're, we, you know, if a business can be built around selling marijuana in, 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 in Denver or some other place, why you still have these people locked up? Uh, because that's what they were doing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's convoluted. Um, people don't seem to be interested in, in, in paying attention to it. Why? Because there's a whole lot of black folks tied up in this system, a whole lot of black folks, not just in the physical facility of a jail or a prison, but probation, parole, you know, what do you call them? Bracelets, all that stuff adds up. And there's a lot of blacks tied up in that system. Was it stories like this in your personal experience that had you dive into it school-wise, post-military? Did you always have this idea, this kind of work you wanted to do? Guys I grew up with, um, most of whom are deceased now, uh, just seem to be all of them sent up to juvie in upstate New York. Uh, upstate New York had some huge um, juvie facilities. And I just remember one day you would see him, the next day you wouldn't. And then six months, a year, two years, you would see him and you say, where you been? And they would usually respond with one word because that's how common it was. You know, I was in Warwick. You didn't have to tell me anything else. I knew what the hell you were talking about, Warwick. Um, and so it was something that was on my mind. And um, uh, when I went to graduate school, I, you know, studied because you had to, um, to get the piece of paper, uh, you know, subjects around incarceration, criminology, et cetera. And even there, it was biased. 
because we were supposed to be the quintessential, the quintessential prisoners. We were like, came out of the womb as criminals. Uh, and this is what they were teaching in graduate school. Uh, you know, this is black folks and, 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 and building their curriculum around this. Um, so, it, you know, I met some people, good people along the way, uh, political activists, et cetera, who were saying, you know, we, we, we got to do something about this. And um, just started spending time trying to, trying to figure it out and, 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 and get the word out that a lot of people are getting railroaded in this country and a lot of black folks. Yep. You know, even this, even this AI stuff, um, you know, recognition is biased against black facial composition. Yes. So you think about that, you say, well, here we are in 2024 soon. And these companies, you know, the same companies, the way I can get on this computer with you and talk to you, all these companies that gave us this wonderful technology, they're the ones building these systems. Uh, and police forces are buying it like, you know, just there's no tomorrow. So we have um, these, uh, I don't know what to call them, systems that says, you know, if I check X number of eight boxes out of 10, that tells me whether or not this character should be released or pre-trial. Um, if they register this kind of a score, then I know they're a flight risk or something. And the people who are into this will tell you these are biased against black people. Um, the algorithms are set in that particular way. For your book that you co-authored, Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Civil and How to Work the Change, what's the origin when you think about the policing of black bodies? Where does it start with for you in this book? Well, academically, you know, everybody who writes this type of book will tell you about the slave patrols. So that's common, common knowledge. But and we do the same thing. We, we, you know, we have a chapter in there on the history of policing, policing of blacks. But this book comes to mind, and you will remember this, um, when consistently, you know, Trayvon Martin, um, the little young kid in Cincinnati who had a toy gun, um, Mike Brown and Ferguson, Eric Garner. I mean, this, you know, Castile in, I think, Minneapolis. This was coming, this was coming every night. I mean, it was unbelievable. Six o'clock news every night. Some, some black person with unarmed black person was getting shot and killed. And so when we dove into it, Said no, this 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 is this is a this is the chapter that shapes the the analysis in the book. But black people are being policed in so many other ways that have nothing to do with the folks that you know carry nightsticks and taser guns and and shotguns. They're being policed 
because of the name that their parents gave them. You know, uh, we always use the, the, the one that comes to mind, Shanika. You drop that on the resume and boom, that resume is going in the garbage. Okay. Uh, so people are being policed by the names that their parents gave them. Uh, you look at a lot of these women who decide to, to wear their hair in a particular way. And their jobs are telling them, you can't wear your hair that way. Or the young black wrestler, he's got some uh, dreads and the ref says, you got you to gotta get rid of those dreads or whatever. And a little white girl runs out with scissors and cut, cuts his hair. What the hell? You know, what's going on here? Then you got this constant every three year move of affirmative action. You know, some white person say, you took my seat. And I'm thinking, how, how, how do you know that seat was your seat? And how do you know I didn't deserve to have that seat over anybody else who got admitted to this university or that university? The only there's 101 official, quote unquote, official racial and ethnic groups in America, 101. Uh, the census allows you to pick maybe five. The only group that's tied up in affirmative action every time it comes up is blacks. And then they get Asians and others to bring the same kinds of charges against blacks. I've been teaching colleges in college and university for 40 years. And I'm going to tell you something. There's some dumb white kids, man. Absolutely dumb. And nobody talks about them. Uh, why are they there? Maybe their parents gave a lot of money or their uncle or grandfather, but I'm telling you, man, dumb. <laughs> and they come after us like we don't belong. And then you get these lightweight politicians in state legislators. They, they're scared of, quote, black history. Don't, don't want their kids to know that there was something called slavery. That's a form of policing. And so the book tries to do, do a broad, you know, analysis with p policing and killing unarmed black people in the Senate. Because sometimes when people think about policing, they fail to think about all the other ways. I'm doing a, a piece coming up and I'm looking at some high profile blacks from, from, from Oprah Winfrey, um, the tennis player, Blake. I'm looking at some of maybe four or five of these high-profile blacks, everybody knows who they are, who've been policed, Oprah in, the, in those stores in, in Switzerland, et cetera, over pocket, buying pocketbooks. Uh, you know, James Blake, famous tennis player, he's taken down, taken down in front of a Fifth Avenue hotel because somebody eyed him as the person who was doing some cell phone scam. Then Forrest Whitaker stopped because somebody said he was stealing something in a grocery store up in the Bronx somewhere. And the point of bringing those people to the, to the discussion I'm having is to say, if it's happening to them, what about us? You know, anybody can just come along and finger you and say, you did it, or he's the guy that did this or that, and you're in trouble. You're in big trouble because the ideology is this is this is the people who do those things. And that's that's being black in America. And people say, well, 
Smith, you know, cool it because uh, President Obama was in for two terms, two terms. And that just kills all these arguments that you're making. And my point is that it solidifies the arguments that I'm making um, because as wonderful president and glad that he served those two terms. But you go in and nitpick and look at some of the policies and practices, and some of them are horrible. Um, and so being in that system means that you participate the way the system rolls. And, you know, when I listen to Hakeem Jeffries talk about the war uh, that's taking place currently, he's in the system. You know, he's in the system. Everybody knows what Israel has been doing over the last 50 years, not just October 7th. But you can't say anything else. You're doomed. I mean, people who are speaking up are losing job opportunities. Colleges and universities are turned upside down because they don't know what to do. And yet one of the groups that's been discriminated against the most in the in the academic arena is Jews. Harvard didn't want them. Yale didn't want them and kept them out as students, as faculty, had policies that said no Jews allowed. And now all of a sudden everybody is, you know, Jewish. You brought up earlier, and I want to mention the name, the killing of Tamar Rice. And when I think about that, I think about what you just said about the policing of Black bodies. In your work, what is it about the fear of Black bodies that justify that policing? Because it doesn't matter if it's a child or an adult, like you said, they're unarmed, but there's always some sort of justification by law of why this had to happen. The guy that killed Breonna Taylor said, as they all say, he feared for his life. In the policies and practices, they have um, suspicions. They can go in on a suspicion. Then when they do the deed, they have qualified immunity. So the system itself allows that institution to operate the way it does. If you took 10 unarmed blacks that have been killed by the police, I will guarantee you, you're going to find out that nine of them were never charged for the crime. George Floyd is a, is a different entity unto itself. Derek Chauvin, if that young woman didn't tape that, Chauvin would be back on the street working. Um, but in general, nine out of 10 of those killings are justified. And what, what, what your question, what allows that is the way black people have been seen and stereotyped in American society. So when DeSantis in Florida, you know, starts telling people what books they can read and what books they can't read, Nine out of 10 of those books is about black people. This guy is some kind of politician, has, knows, knows nothing about literature or subjects of, of you know, that type. But because he can, that's what they do. And they're afraid of the truth. You know, I like the argument that says some of these little kids' feelings are going to get hurt. 
then go back to places like Little Rock and watch those little black girls. Some of them now, you know, I forget her name. She has a, there's a picture of her. She's in a little skirt, nice shoes. You know, she's about four feet tall, 75 pounds. And these white parents, men and women are spitting on her, throwing things at her. So what was her feelings like when this was happening to her? Nobody questioned, you know, did she go home and cry? Did she wet the bed at night because she was stressed out? Did she die early because of being stressed from being that five-year-old? So when we tell kids today, part of the social studies curriculum is this country was built on slavery. It's the truth, but we can't put it out there because then the little kids will feel bad. Nobody said they did it. It simply says the system that was set in place. Now, that's good. Now, you you express and you explain that very well about the system part. What is it about those that look like us from our own community that buy into that? You know, I... I always want to be careful uh, with that question um, because people have the right to to think and believe what they want. So when I see the data today that says blacks in general, blacks, uh, a little bit uptight with Joe Biden, so they're going to throw their votes to Donald Trump. Say, well, you do that. that. You know, you have the right to do that. And so that question raises for me, you know, to be a little bit careful. People have the right to do that. But sometimes people don't know what they're doing. And when a politician like Donald Trump, who's, who has have a terrible history with black people, you know, not selling them apartments, charging them outrageous rents, if he did sell, sell them apartments, you know, uh, through his speeches or whoever writes his speeches, talking about black people, Muslim people, et cetera. Um, So the ideology seeps in. And when you see the rallies and they always see up front, blacks for Trump signs. Say, well, they they have the right to do that. But it's a sad commentary on a people who have been stepped on by these people, and now you're going to go back and, and support them. I mean, we, we, you know, Malcolm X used to talk about house ends and field ends. And he explained, you know, the house folks, they, you know, they were getting the leftovers from the meal and, and, and they didn't have to go out in the field and work. So they always were happy around the master. Um, but field folks, they took up arms and protested the negative conditions under which they had to live. So I say, you know, if Tim Scott types want to talk about how great white people are and whatnot, well, good for him. You know, I hope I hope he's happy with it. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I, I, I appreciate you saying that, I do. And I, I feel you in that as far as the challenging part of how we speak on it. Um, I was reading, take for example, um, the, I think this was just the Washington, um, the New York Times, where that stat had came out just about maybe about four weeks ago about how 27% of black men want to vote for Trump. Now, black women, their stats are apparently the same, but black men and this attraction with Trump and this attraction with that. Doc, I, I just got to ask you, what is that? I'm, I'm, just, I'm sorry. I just, what is that? Right there with black men. False. Despite- false masculinity. You know, they see Trump, he, you know, he t- you see the Hollywood tapes where he talks down to women, um, where he claims, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't touch this woman that he raped uh, because it's not his type, uh, where he takes up with hookers and you know, has his bag man pay off the hooker. Uh, you know, this is that masculinity. I'm, you know, we got to be careful as men because women are taking over and, you know, there's all, I, at least in the last year, there's at least 10 new books about, uh, the decline of boys and men. And, um, inside of most of them, there's chapters about black men, you know, not being able to measure up as men, but a guy like Trump and Trump. Trump, Reagan, and John Wayne. You see, you can go and you can see the same thing. They're supposed to be light right on, man. I mean, crush them, you know? Uh, and so that's what I see. And, and, and then look at, look at the black guys that Trump brings around him. Mike Tyson. Um, I don't know if Meriwether, but... Jim yeah. Brown, when he was Jim alive. Brown. Jim Brown. Ray Lewis. Steve Ray Harvey. Lewis. Yep. Yeah. Look, just look at who he surrounds himself with, and they they come and they play that role. And I'm thinking, I mean, I love Jim Brown. He, you know, Long Island guy, Syracuse. I mean, you couldn't have been a better football, basketball, lacrosse player. And once I started getting the inside scoop, can't can't deal with it, man. Just go your own way, you know. Thank thank you for giving me something. I never false masculinity because there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity but not false masculinity can you expound on that a little bit please um it's like when we went in to these prisons to to do the research for way down in hole um one of the women that we interviewed and, and and these all these interviews were inside of solitary confinement and for non-medical doctors, psychiatrists, those people have been going into solitary and have done the wonderful work telling us about what happens to you, what happens to your body when you're living in there. But for social behavioral science types, I think our research team was one of the first teams to go in. And we're in this women's prison and getting ready to go in and, 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 and ask these you know, we had to get permission from each prisoner that we could interview them. And so we go to this cell and there's this tiny woman in there. And there's a, there's a 
piece of paper on the cell door. These are old cells, bars. No, excuse me. They had, there was doors in this particular quad. And there was a sign there that said, use children's handcuffs. Use a child's handcuffs. Because every time you come in and out of solitary, you got to be cuffed and shackled and all that. And so when we got permission, she came out. We went to the uh, interview room. Here's this tiny little woman, about 50. She had been in there maybe 30 years. And I'm sitting there, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, all I could do was cry. Because it was clear to me that when she went in at 11, she went in at 11, and the way we talk about her in the book is, you know, she went in at a point where she hadn't even had a period yet. And she'll die there because of the crime. So I'm sitting there crying my eyes out. And when... Now, if I'm in class and I'm talking about it and I'm telling the students, like, you know, look at me, I'm, I'm from the old school. Uh, people in my cohort, males, didn't cry. Um, and so I'm, I could have put on this false masculinity and, you know, sat there, did my interview and, and went home. Uh, it's fake. It's absolutely fake. And, you, and here's how you can see it and know it. Look at all these January 6th guys who climbed there, beat up people behind their backs, hitting them in the back of their head and whatnot. But now when they got to stand up in front of the uh, court and get sentenced, they're crying, they're crapping in their pants. Please don't send me to prison. Uh, what they were showing on January 6th is what I would call false masculinity. You know, there was a crowd. There was other people. But now they're alone, and their main man hasn't shown up yet. Remember, he, he was going to take care of the, of the bills. He hasn't shown up, and they're getting ready to send him to a prison. And they already know that once you go into a, a male maximum security prison, and you're a white, because of the disproportionate number of black guys in there who have to protect themselves, now you're a little white guy, you send him up, you're done. You're absolutely done. And so they're afraid. Um, so that fake masculinity they put on, mm -mm, it don't work in prison. In fact, they found one of them this week dead inside of his cell. Yep. White guy. You're talking about your book, Way Down in the Hole, Race, Intimacy, and the Reproduction of Racial Ideologies and Solitary Confinement. Not only did you just talk to people, but you talked to over a hundred face-to-face interviews with inmates and correctional officers. And you, you describe a piece of that experience for yourself going through and having those conversations. What was something that you, what was one of the most consistent things that kept coming out those conversations? Race. The psychiatrists and psychologists almost to a one. And we've met a number uh, the preface to the book or forward, whatever they call it, is written by a famous psychiatrist named Terry Coopers. And Terry told me, he says, Earl, solitary confinement is one of the most racist parts of the prison industrial complex. 
And so when we went in, from the day we went in and met with the captains and everybody's introduced, et cetera, I'm the only black guy on our research team, mostly white females. And I can tell you, COs didn't want to talk to Earl Smith. Okay. They, they didn't want to have any conversations because of the, the stereotypes about who black people are. Um, and so I interviewed maybe one or two, but most of my interviews were with prisoners. And I interviewed black prisoners, white prisoners, women, and even the white guys that I interviewed told me that the worst conditions, you know, they have all this slang about what, you know, what, what happens when they, when the CO bypasses your cell and on the tray is your insulin for the morning, they just bypass you and keep walking, never delivers the insulin or, you know, or don't feed you when, when, when you don't, you don't come and go in solitary, everything is brought to you, you know? So now the COs are complaining that they're babysitting, you know, and they're ticked off about things like TVs, you know, you're doing life and you got a 13 inch plastic TV. This is supposed to be beyond privilege. So the racism is so deep, it's, it's unbelievable. And we think, well, and we write about this, the only black people that these, and, and most of the CEOs were white, the, most of them, the only black people they know and see are black prisoners. And that's how they shape their worldview about black people. And even the black CEOs that we interviewed said, I don't know how much longer I can uh, continue in this job. They didn't live in those hick towns, you know, those backwater towns where they put prisons. So you got, we, the black CEOs are telling us they're driving an hour, hour and a half, two hours to get to work because they're coming from a more urban center. Um, the, I'll never forget the smells, the noise, the the, the 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 feces in the showers. Uh, I'm thinking, you got all these people captive because this is what the military does. You got all these people captive. You can't clean up this mess. Got papers all over the floors. You know, in the military, you didn't have that. I mean, these these barracks were clean, and the soldiers cleaned them. Um, the 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 misogyny was as heavy, if just as heavy as the racism. Um, the hatred, I mean, we, we interviewed transgender prisoners in solitary. Unbelievable, man. Unbelievable. Um, you know, um, men transitioning their choice. They're asking not to be put in men's prisons and supposedly sent to solitary for their safety. And we're being told, you know, at the day shift ends at five o'clock. Now you got a skeleton night shift and all hell breaks loose, you know, leaving people's cell doors open and, you know, that kind of crap. Uh, so as I said earlier, that, that system is, is horrible 
unbelievably horrible. And to talk to people in, in solitary, uh, many of them, as the psychiatrists and doctors tell us, have, have some mental, mental health issues, PTSD, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to hold these people there, chained, when they come out to watch TV in the day room, they get chained to the, to the table trying to color color and coloring books like eighth grade kids they're chained to the table um it's 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 a system that has to go you know and and i don't mean you know we have high visible places like pelican bay and you know some of those places in in the california system that get on pbs tv and whatnot uh, the place we went there's nobody filming anything there um, it's just a catchment, catchment spot for people down on their luck often. Um, so, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy you picked up the title and, and the theme song to The Wire. I mean, I can watch The Wire every day of the week. I, 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 I uh, rewatched it again um, about a couple months ago, and it's, it's such an excellent show. And it, it, it's, it has a special place in my heart because I had just moved to D.C. from Detroit, and I was the only one watching at the time when it was supposed to be just a miniseries. So I've been rocking with The Wire from day one. So when I saw Way Down in the Hole, I'm like, I have that in my playlist. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and, I'm, and thank you for bringing that up because I really want to ask you um, my last few questions before we leave was what was the significance of that show for you to name the book in that? What was the connection for you? Well, I had watched, I watched it. Um, and then I saw some of the characters transition out to different roles in, in different places. Uh, and then the, one of the main characters is, is, has that OD. Um, I just thought it, it captured for us what we had done in a, in, you know, academic stuff is weird. And, you know, when you, when you're starting out, you gotta, you gotta write these articles, you gotta write these books they have to be written in a certain way. And then there's somebody standing over your shoulder telling you didn't do it right. So, you know, go back to square one. And, and by the time we get around to, to way down in the hole and, and, and policing, and another book we did on family violence um, is write what I want, you know, in the way that I want it. And what I really want is a book that people are going to read. I mean, academic books should sit on a shelf and ain't nobody reading them. Want a book with that one word that says accessible. You know, if somebody says to me, wow, this was really accessible. I could read it and understand it. There's no jargon in it. You know, you don't have a gazillion footnotes. Um, so way down in hole told us, at least in this, in the song, that there was something about solitary that was more than the whole, even though we explained it was on like the second floor. But when you went in, you felt like you were you were going down there, and when you talked to like correctional officers who checked us in, took the keys, took your belts, and all that kind of stuff, they would say, "Wow, I mean, I I, I don't want that assignment. I'm not signing up for that assignment. I mean, down there is something else." 
And, you know, the people who do take the assignment, they get paid extra. They get, you know, double shifts when they want them. Uh, so The Wire summed up that kind of place, even though, you know, it's in Baltimore. Yeah, and I do find it interesting that even though every season had a different theme, that song remained the same because that was the connection for me. And and I began to love that song more and more. Love and feel a certain kind of um, hurt from it, you know, in that theme. I, I got to ask you about the book that you also wrote, Gender Power Violence, Responding to the Sexual Intimate Partner Violence in Society Today and Race. You mentioned earlier about the one thing that's one of the things that stood out to you during the interview was the misogyny. How much does a role to misogyny play a part in this book? In the Gender Power and Violence book, one of the one of the pieces of work that we're doing right now, currently publishing papers all over the place, is on intimate partner violence, domestic violence, and race. And we're doing face-to-face interviews with men and women who are living with this kind of violence in their lives. And and everybody who's done like surveys have said the the lethal nature of the violence inside of uh, Latinx black communities is just off the charts. You know, people getting in the hit in the head with ball peen hammers, their jaws busted with the, you know, butt of shotguns. Um, and so we went and we took seven institutions to just look at the way they handle gender violence. And we looked at the Catholic church and like the war that's taking place now, nobody wants to talk about the Catholic church. It's unbelievable. You can have the church in Boston. You can have it in Philadelphia. You can have it in California. You can have it in Rome. You can have it in Brussels. And these priests are doing the same thing. They're abusing, raping these little kids everywhere. So there must be something institutionally about it. And then we went and we looked at, I think, sports, uh, prisons. um, And in every institution, you have these high levels of violence, uh, domestic violence. And depending on the institution, depending on their internal policies and procedures, uh, some of this never gets put out in the mainstream. The Me Too movement brought some of it out as it related to Hollywood. But you get into NFL, football, et cetera, where they have these policies, but they don't adhere to them. They don't push them. I mean, you know, you can debate whether or not people have done things, and we're real careful about that. Uh, but you don't give, you know, a, a, a football player who's been implicated in dozens of cases the biggest contract in football ever. I mean, so when I see that, I'm wondering, okay, are you just saying you don't care about what's been happening here? Uh, anyway, it's it's complicated. It's it's legal. Uh, I can tell you, we have a database that we built from scratch. has over four hundred cases, um, and you can go in and you can search. And people have been doing research, 
using our database. But gender-based violence was something that we, we were hearing about when we were doing this other research, but hadn't paid attention to it. Uh, and so that's our, that's our latest uh, project. Dr. Smith, I, I just got two more questions. And, and the first one is leading off on what you just said. Which one do you feel in society is a bigger concern in American society, racism or misogyny? <laughs> I'm going to say racism. Um, I, I'd have to think on it in terms of why, but just off the top of my head, I'm going to say racism. Uh, every day I see a racial incident. I, I ride a bike in my academic, my safe academic community. And, um, depending on where I am on the path, uh, People might say, hi, you know, hi, how's it going? How's today? Whatever. Depending on what part of the path I'm on, they may run up a little bit faster. I'm looking in my mirror and I can see that like looking back, looking back. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm just an old guy out for a bike ride. You know, I got a, a little tiny motor on my bike to make sure I can get from point A to point B. I mean, I'm not going to harm you. Um, and you can feel it in certain parts of, quote, town. Uh, I can go in the store. I feel it. I can go in the classroom. I got to deal with these students. Uh, you know, they, they won't write anything in terms of this so-called evaluation of your class with their name on it. But anonymously, they'll say, you're the worst professor they ever had in their life. And they're thinking, you're 18 years old. You ain't had a life yet. Um, and then, you know, you got to answer to some dean. Well, why, why did you do this or that? I was thinking, you know, this, make them put their name on it, and then we'll talk about it. Okay? Uh, the racism is thick. Academe is loaded with it uh, from the top down. You know, the higher you go up in administration, the whiter it gets. You know, you classify people in different ranks, full professor, associate assistant. You get up to full professor, it's clear black folks don't get that uh, title, that position. So I'd say I'd say race, you know. And with that answer, Dr. Smith, of saying race, my final question, do you think race is about fear or is it about power? Both. Absolutely both. You know, just look at Thomas Jefferson. Okay, this guy fooled with the race issue uh, and kept that woman and those kids. Told them that when he died, they he quote they would be manumitted, set free, and he lied to them. So he knew the power of the freed slave, um, but he also knew and he believed that anybody with dark skin was inferior. This is third president of the United States. And yet he spent his whole life with Sally Hemming. I think they had six kids. Um, so it's both power and fear. Thank you, Dr. Smith. This was this was my blackness has been elevated. Usually I ask the guests what they black is elevated, but 
I'm sorry, you, I, I'm being totally selfish. I know mine was elevated. I don't want to be arrogant enough to ask you, was yours elevated? Because we learned a lot um, today. Is there any way we can support you? Is there anything we should be looking out for? Um, probably another book. Um, I think there's one more in me. Um, and we want to center uh, Black women who struggle in some of these relationships and give them a voice. Um, as I said, we've been, well, we've been interviewing and publishing on this for a long time, but this most recent go around was spending a lot of time and, and, and we got a good team of psychi- psychologists, et cetera, where we're looking at things like brain injury and, and how that hampers these mostly women from taking care of their families, from working, from continuing in school, uh, and the whole issue of they don't believe them. You know, they step up to tell the story and they get arrested, that kind of thing. So that that's going to be the finale in terms of the work. I appreciate it. Is there any platform that we can follow of you that we can keep up so we can know? Yes. I'm going to send you a that Q code. Okay. So you can look at our database, the sport database, but then we have a center um, and I'll send you that address. And we have like the Instagram and you know, that kind of stuff. I appreciate you. Thank you. Dr. Earl Smith. This has been a wonderful, great episode and definitely informative episode of history being black. I'm Jay Hall. You can always hit me up on any social media platform at Jay Hall society. You can catch episodes of history being black or anywhere where podcast is, Apple and Spotify and all the ones I keep forgetting. <laughs> you can also follow us on our social media at History Being Black on IG and me and our Lion Media. It's been wonderful. You be blessed with successful and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dr. Earl Smith. Thank you. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.